the most important thing is the Senate can change its rules whenever it wants. The senators are very powerful. That the majority leader does not have as much power as we think he does. That all senators are equal. That they all can make motions. That they can all force votes. Efforts to negotiate deals and packages and everything else are meant to try to control that process. Welcome to Real Impeachment. This is Ross Garber. In this episode, we are going to get into the nitty-gritty of the rules and the processes that are used in a Senate impeachment trial. There are tons of bad takes on what a Senate impeachment trial of President Trump is going to look like if you're just relying on the news or Twitter. Uh, I urge you to listen to uh, this podcast I had a fascinating conversation uh, with somebody who is an expert on these things, Uh, somebody who knows the Senate rules, knows the Senate procedures, knows all of the precedents, and it was a fascinating discussion. It really, uh, I think, is insightful about what to expect in the Senate trial. Uh, My guest was James Walner. James uh, teaches at American University. He's a fellow at the American University's Center of Congressional and Presidential Studies. He is a senior fellow for the think tank R Street. Uh, He'd been the executive director of the Senate Steering Committee uh, during the chairmanships of Senator Pat Toomey and Senator Mike Lee. Uh, He also served as the legislative director to uh, Senator Toomey and to former Senator uh, Sessions. Uh, He's the author of two books, The Death of Deliberation, Partisanship, and Polarization in the United States Senate, and On Parliamentary War, Partisan Conflict, and Procedural Change in the United States Senate. This guy is a Senate rules guru, and he was a terrific person to talk to about the rules that are going to apply and the procedures and the Senate history and precedent that are going to apply in a Senate trial. Uh, It was a fascinating discussion and I think will be uh, useful. It was definitely useful for me. So please listen, uh, share it. If you have thoughts, comments, please reach out to me at Ross Garber on Twitter. But for now, enjoy. All right, James, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in. We're going to be getting deep on the on the rules. And, and again, the, you know, the notion is uh, this is kind of a deep nonpartisan take to help folks understand, you know, what's likely to go on and what issues could come up. And, and where I want to start is uh, with the role of the chief justice in impeachment trials. Um, how does it work? The, the Constitution says the Chief Justice shall preside, um, but what's the Chief Justice's job? Well, the Chief Justice, as you said, is to preside over the impeachment trial of a president of the United States when that person has been impeached by the House. But beyond that, it doesn't say much. That's when we look to the Senate rules. Yeah, so what, what's preside yeah, mean? The Senate rules are, are very clear. The presiding officer is meant to administer or to manage the process whereby the Senate makes its decisions. And the impeachment rules actually are spell out in much greater detail, I would suggest, than the standing rules of the Senate, what the Chief Justice or the presiding officer's job is during an impeachment trial than the presiding officer's job is in during legislative business. I guess let's start at, a, at the, the super high level because I want to dive a little bit deeper into the, the actual rules. So the Constitution says the Chief Justice shall preside. Is there an argument that uh, the chief justice uh, uh, is not the same as the presiding officer uh, in a normal Senate proceeding and can't be restricted in what the chief chief justice uh, does by rules that the Senate should adopt because the Constitution vests the chief justice with the role of presiding over a, a Senate trial of the president? Well, it's a great question, and there's a constitutional answer, I think, and then there's a practical answer. The constitutional answer is Article One, Section 5, Clause 2 gives the Senate, not the presiding officer, 
plenary power over the rules of procedure. So whatever the chief justice decides or any person sitting in the Senate chair at any point can be reversed by the full Senate whenever the full Senate chooses to reverse it. From a practical standpoint, sure, the chief justice, the chair, whoever's sitting in the chair right now can do and rule whatever they want to rule. But the reality of the situation is it will be reversed. There's nothing that the Senate can do to control the vice president or the presiding officer, if it's the chief justice, because they don't pick those people. And so ultimately, yes, they can make all sorts of rulings. But at the end of the day, those rulings are subject to appeal and they're subject to a vote by the full Senate, which is precisely why I would just add why the Senate is, hasn't gone down the road of the House People oftentimes attribute it to other things. The House picks its speaker. The Senate does not. And this is a critical component of the institution and the way in which it operates today. I think that's a that's a good point. So looking at, at precedent for uh, the role of uh, the chief justice or the presiding officer of a Senate impeachment trial, what historically has been uh, the presiding officer's job, the chief justice's job. Let's start at the last revision of the impeachment rules in 1986, where they clarified what the presiding officer, by they I mean senators, could rule on in terms of questions of evidence. And there's a long list in the Senate's impeachment rules of those types of things. And they wanted to be very specific. But the, the chief justice comes in, in this case, say that Roberts arrives, and his first job is to administer, after, after being administered the oath, to administer the oath to senators. And then his next step is to preside over the trial that unfolds pursuant to rules that he doesn't determine and to rule on motions or submit motions, I would add, uh, that senators or the council, the house managers submit to him. Historically, chief justices have not been heavy handed in that process, but there's nothing precluding Roberts. I don't think he will, but there's nothing precluding him from ruling on more motions if more motions are made than, in, say, Rehnquist did in 99. And I think you start at a, a key point that I think we want to we make as, a, as sort of a starting point beyond the Constitution is there actually are rules that the Senate has adopted for impeachment processes. 26 right? of them. 26. You can look them up. <laughs> they, they they're, are, there. they're there. They're there. They're in the Senate rules. And I think a good way into those rules is that they, as you know, provide a role uh, and a job for the chief justice. And, you know, can you outline what what those rules provide for the chief justice? I think that the rules also underscore the administrative nature of the chief justice's job. The chief justice, for instance, swears uh, or administers an oath to the senators. The rules say that the chief justice shall administer the oath. Doesn't give him the option, doesn't give him a discretion to decide if he wants to administer an oath to that senator but not that senator. The chief justice reads the rules and says, well, I need to go administer the oath because that's my job now. And then he presides over the trial in a very administrative type role. So for example, the chief justice doesn't have the power to say disqualify a senator. I would submit that the chief justice is not both under the rules and under the constitution. There's been a debate about this, but my view, my reading of it is that the chief justice does not have the authority, under, certainly under the existing Senate rules, to disqualify senators. And senators have adjudicated this process in the past. And when they've done that, on one occasion, it was during legislative session, not during an impeachment trial. So the chief justice wasn't even there. It was not for a judge, so he wouldn't have been there. But it wasn't the chair, in that sense, didn't have the power. And then the other occasion, the senators resolved the issue themselves. The chief justice played no role um, in, during the, the Johnson impeachment trial. So I think the chief justice has an administrative role. The rules are very clear. The Senate or House managers or the counsel for the respondent, if they have a motion, a proposal they want to make, they have to submit it in writing to the chief justice who then puts the question. It underscores the administrative role. Are there motions or proposals that the chief justice can decide himself? So the chief justice has, has the power under the rules to make determinations on questions of evidence and other things that are, that are presented on, on motion. The question, though, the problem is that those things can all be reversed or overturned by the Senate on an appeal by any senator without debate at a simple majority threshold. So the chief justice has no real power in this scenario. Uh, under the rules, can the chief justice make a decision himself or put it first to the to the senators 
as a body. Yes, the, the Chief Justice does have a discretion on, so you have questions that the Chief Justice ostensibly doesn't have power to rule on. I believe things like disqualifying senators from, from participating in the Anything trial. Anything else? Um, but, the, but you'd also have rules that the Chief Justice can rule on. On those things, the Chief Justice can say, well, I want to submit this to the, the full Senate, or I will issue a ruling first. That's up. He can decide that. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in this case, can decide that. And my, my expectation is that he will probably submit more of those questions than not. But, it, but also, I would doubt that we would see a lot of those questions. I mean, the Senate over the years has not been the freewheeling greatest deliberative body that we've, that we've expected it to be or that we expect it to be from the days of lore. And so we're not, this, the, the impeachment trial is not going to be a freewheeling trial where you have senators offering motions and everything else. Uh, maybe it will be. I don't know. But my expectation is that it will look a lot like it does now when the Senate debates legislation or nominees. And, and there's probably sort of a backdoor way uh, to prevent some of those motions in the first instance by adopting rules and, and procedures that sort of preempt some of those motions that might be made, no? That's uh, correct. The Senate has adopted supplementary rules from time to time in addition to their impeachment rules. And those supplementary rules have put uh, guardrails, if you will, around the process. And they've maybe they've changed the rules here and there. Uh, but they're different, but they're unique for that particular trial only. And they're typically adopted um, within the trial. Sometimes they'll be adopted before the trial. And this is a key point. We've heard a lot of talk about the Clinton impeachment rules and the Clinton, uh, the tri the Clinton trial and the rules that we need to follow. The, the practice of the Senate, so far as I can tell, going back to, you know, we'll leave, you know, William Blunt out of this because he was a senator and probably shouldn't be in, you know, impeaching, you know, legislators. But set that aside, John Pickering, we go to the first one. From John Pickering on, you see the same rules crop up. And the same practice crop up. And the, these rules are codified in 1868, more or less, with the Johnson impeachment trial. But the practice for a very long time was that the Senate would look at what happened before in anticipation of articles of impeachment arriving. And then they would say, well, we, you know, and then they would go through and they would appoint a committee and they would study and they would figure out what they need to do differently. They may say, what do we expect to happen in this trial? And they would then change those rules prior to and in anticipation of a trial beginning. And I have it um, here, the, this, the procedure we follow today has been used since 1904, whereby the House votes to impeach and adopts articles of impeachment at the same time and sends it over to the Senate and appoints managers, ostensibly, although currently that's not happening. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. Right, yeah. but historically, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Before 1904, the practice was for the House to first impeach, which is like they would come over to the Senate and say, hey, we're going to impeach this somebody. And then they would go back and they would say, we're going to send you articles of impeachment at some undefined time in the future, along with our managers. And then only when those articles of impeachment and the managers arrived, did the House complete its steps in the impeachment process under the Constitution, and then the Senate then could have a trial. And so during that time, of impeach articles arriving, the Senate would usually, you know, look at its rules, and sometimes they may change the rules, they may uh, make modifications to them, they may adopt supplementary rules that they say are only for this particular trial. But it's a very interesting uh, thing that we don't have today. We don't have today because the articles haven't yet been delivered. We don't have today for lots of reasons. One, for the longest time, there was this uh, an understanding that there were no rules. <laughs> <laughs> that could, it was just chaos or a black box, I think, was what one senator described it, a black box. It's not. There are 26 rules. They're very specific. Um, and so there, it's not a black box. And it's different, though, because today we point to the Clinton trial and we say we, have, we want to go with supplementary rules. And those supplementary rules packages are going to wrap everything up and make it all neat and tidy. And we'll know what we're dealing with. That's the goal. Take the, the, the negotiation between Minority Leader Schumer and Majority Leader McConnell. Uh, Minority Leader Schumer wanted one global, for the lack of a better, you know, one-step uh, supplementary rules package that governed the structure of the trial, governed what witnesses that would be called, guaranteed, all of this stuff. So we wouldn't see any motions on those fronts. McConnell wanted something, it seems very different, but not very different, really. He wanted two motions but two motions that would do the same or two resolutions that would do the same thing. 
Um, they very they wrap everything up. They're not following the Senate rules. Things aren't unfolding as it happens. Senator, you know, that's, and I think that speaks more to the way that the Senate is managed today than it does to anything with, with President Trump's impeachment. I think it has more to do with the fact that the senators have less tolerance for uncertainty. They have less willingness for a freewheeling process. They expect their leaders to be in control. And so the leaders naturally turn to supplementary rules. This idea, I mean, the impeachment rules, the, the, my, my suspicion is that they don't even think about the impeachment rules. They're there, but the idea that we could go forward in a trial with the actual standing impeachment rules probably seems like a very scary thing to them. Today. Today. Right, but previously, I think uh, it sounds like the point is it was fine to have so, sort of those g that general framework and then allow the you know most deliberative body in the world to then deliberate as to the rest of the stuff as as needed which is, is less it sounds like you're saying the the dynamic today sure so in the past you had to have supplementary rules and those supplementary rules may add to the senate's impeachment rules here and there they may change certain things about them but they would ultimately be based on that and today i think our expectation is that our packages of supplementary rules are going to completely supplant and provide for structure and organization of the trial in a way that the others they were more it, you know the, before it was they were in kind of incorporated into it and it's not like these things were ever like nice you know, johnson's trial senators argued endlessly about how many people could speak at the end you know so i mean these disputes have been around for a very long time and they can seem petty at times they may not seem petty i'm sure they seem illegitimate to someone who opposes them but the point of the process the point of the rules is that you have a way in which you can adjudicate all of those things, and every senator has an opportunity to make their feelings known. Under the regular Senate rules. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. under the impeachment rules, a for that matter. Indeed. Yeah. Actually, before we leave the Chief Justice, uh, what about the question of whether uh, the Chief Justice can break a tie vote? Let's say there's a, a motion, uh, and it's put to the Senate, and it ends in a tie. Does the Chief Justice get to break that tie? I'm fascinated by this question. And it's really interesting because if— we have a contested, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but if we have a contested trial, i.e. a trial whereby there's no kind of global package of rules, we have the impeachment rules, or Democrats are actually using, or Republicans are using the rules as they are written, the 26 rules to actually try to achieve their goals, so a normal trial. Mm -hmm. If we had that, then if four, I believe four Republicans switch, then that's all it needs. So if three go, it's a tie. Right. Yep. So the vice president under the Constitution is charged with breaking ties. Well, the vice president doesn't sit in the chair very often anymore. So senators do. And if there's a tie, then the senator presumably may, you know, cast their vote. Um, well, no, then the vice president would come back and he would break a tie. But the chief justice is only being is only the presiding officer in the Constitution. The chief justice is not given the power to break ties. And so I'm not sure people are making this argument, but I think you can make an argument that the vice president has the power to break ties regardless of whether or not he's sitting in the chair. And the chief justice does not have the power to break ties because he's not the vice president. With that being said, the chief justice has voted on two occasions during the Johnson impeachment trial in 1868 to break a tie and then declined on another or refrained from voting on another occasion. But even then, I think Senator Sumner from Massachusetts uh, if I remember correctly, rose up and, and was very critical of the idea that somehow the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court would be breaking a tie in the United States Senate. So this is a contested idea. It's a very interesting idea. So all of a sudden, what happens if you have three Republicans go over to the Democratic side and on a motion to call a witness? And does Pence come in and try to vote to break a tie? And then what happens? Although it's it sounds like... Uh what could happen, and, and what happened previously, is the Chief Justice uh, in the in the Johnson situation broke the tie, uh, and at least one senator was very upset by that notion, but sort of that upset went nowhere. And, you know, is there really a remedy in that situation for the Senate if the Chief Justice actually does break the tie? Sure, it goes back to our, our first bit in the discussion. The remedy is the Senate can overturn the Chief Justice. And so if, say, uh, 
uh, Minority Leader Schumer doesn't like the fact that, that, that Chief Justice Roberts just voted to break a tie, and he lost, he can rake a point of order and then force the Republicans to say, no, we think we want to vote and, and we want to get a simple majority and we want to create a precedent, again, reaffirm it, that says they can do that. Or what happens if uh, Vice President Pence comes in and he's just sitting in the back row and there's a tie and he says, I'm in my capacity as vice president, I move to break, you know, I, I vote I or nay, depending on the witness. You know, I'm, my guess is there'll be a contested situation and someone will make a point of order and there'll be a vote. But that's how we get clarity. That's how these things work. That's how the Senate has operated historically. Today, we treat it as if it's the worst thing in the world. There are, at least theoretically, a lot of interesting issues that could come up. That's one. Let's talk about now the, starting the trial. You know, we, if you watch, uh, you know, CNN, MSNBC, or read the New York Times, you you see this notion that uh, the Senate trial, at least as we sit here today, uh, cannot start because the Speaker hasn't delivered the articles of impeachment and hasn't appointed the managers. Um, That may have been corrected by the time this podcast is released, but at least as of today, so we might as well talk about it. is the reason for that, which I, I think people hardly ever kind of get into, is the reason for that is that the standing Senate rules provide that there are s- certain activities, that essentially the trial activities, don't start until those things happen. So, in other words, is it the standing Senate rules on impeachment that that preclude uh, the trial from going forward until the managers are appointed and the articles are delivered? That's correct, but I wouldn't say preclude. I would put it more in terms of uh, kicking off. So it, when the articles and the managers arrive to exhibit those articles at the bar of the Senate, the rules are very clear. At that point, that's what, under the rules, starts the Senate's process. So if that doesn't happen under the rules, the rules, there's no process. You're not you're not able to organize. Is there a way around that for the Senate? Well, they could... They could ignore their rules. They could they could nuke their rules. They could create new rules. Um, you have a, a proposal from Senator Hawley who uh, who wants to change the impeachment rules and to add a motion to just a preemptive motion to dismiss, if you will. Uh, and his proposal is very clear. He wants to, in regular legislative session, which is appropriate, um, offer a resolution, have the Senate approve it, that would change and add to the first impeachment rule a preemptive motion to dismiss based on this inability or unwillingness to prosecute. Sure, you could you could do that. The next question then becomes, well, what if the, what's the spirit, the constitutional implications of it? And I think this is very interesting. Jefferson and uh, Thomas Jefferson in his manual of parliamentary practice, he was the vice president. I know many of your listeners probably have their worn copy right next to them as they listen to this podcast. I'm sure. Yeah. He was presiding over the Senate from 1797 to 1801, 1800 or so, when he was vice president. And he wrote a manual of parliamentary practice. And that manual is still the basis of the House's um, rules today. But that manual is very valuable because it goes back and it looks at, to try to figure out how the Senate should operate, it looks at what happened in England. It looks at what happens in the state legislatures. It looks at general parliamentary law. and it really affirms the idea that our impeachment proceedings were modeled on the British proceedings. And in the British proceedings, as Jefferson points out, it's very clear. You have someone in the commons, they impeach a government official or any private person, I think, in Great Britain, uh, of, of a crime at the bar of the Lords, the House of Lords, and then the House of Lords tries them. And Jefferson and the founders and the framers were very concerned that you that process was separated. Because if you are give the Senate the ability to hold a trial without having the House first impeach that person at your bar, then you're ostensibly, I think, impeaching and trying. And that's, I think, a very worrisome, worrisome development. The last thing I would add is just practical, I mean, for that matter. I mean, one, the Senate can't act on something that originates outside of it unless it has been told as a body that something has happened. You as a senator can open up the New York Times or the Washington Post and read an article, but the Senate as an official body, the president can't have a press conference and say, well, I really think that um, that Justice Kavanaugh is a great justice and I'm going to nominate him to the 
I nominate him to the Supreme Court. Well, the Senate can't then confirm him. They have to get the papers, right? Well, can they set a deadline to get the papers, though? But you have no recourse because Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2 gives each House plenary power over the rules of their proceedings, which means the House can decide however it wants to fulfill its constitutional obligations. And one of those is the power to impeach. So the Senate cannot restrict the House's activity on that front. The Senate has the power to try, but you can't try a case until someone's been impeached. I'm going to actually ask you the question of whether the implication of what you're saying is that President Trump has not been impeached. But uh, so as a practical matter, though. Well, I think he I think he has been impeached, but I think this is where your listeners may roll their eyes. But as a practical matter for in parliamentary speak, the Senate, for, for, the, for all intents and purposes, the president has not been impeached because no one's told the Senate officially as a body that the president has been impeached. So has he been impeached? Or I believe he has been impeached. However, that's just me. The question is for the Senate to have a trial. You have to have someone say it's time to have a trial. Does that make sense? Well, it, it, it may make sense. So they, the House passed articles of impeachment uh, and in the resolution, it says that the president is impeached. So that and that's past the House uh, for what it's worth. Uh, and you may say it's not worth anything, but for what it's worth, the Speaker of the House held a press conference saying that the president has been impeached and has reiterated that the president has been impeached. So from the House's point of view, it seems as if nothing more with respect to impeachment is contemplated. The resolution says the president is impeached. The speaker verified that the president has been impeached. But no one's exhibited the impeachment at the bar of the Senate. To your point, the the House's resolution that includes impeach and articles, those two things were originally separated. And the impeachment would come first historically, then the articles second. And the articles were usually combined with managers who would then carry them to the Senate. But think about a bill. The House and Senate pass legislation. Well, they once did, but they often will pass legislation. And they will hold it at the desk after passing it before sending it over because they want to wait for a more favorable time. Does that mean that I mean, you can look at the bill up online. You can read the newspaper and say, well, that, that bill passed. There's a vote. It's in the record. I know that this bill passed. So therefore, we're just going to call up S whatever or HR whatever because we know it passed. But you can't do that. You have to wait for the bill to get there because you don't have it yet. Well, do you have to wait or can the Senate say, so look, the Constitution says the House has the sole power to impeach. The House has discharged that power. They have done it. There's nothing else for them to do with respect to impeachment. They have impeached. Now, with respect to the trial, now the Senate can set the rules for trial. And one of the things, uh, one of the rules that the Senate can set is, uh, all right, so the House has done its impeachment. If you now have 30 days from the date of impeachment to transmit the articles to the Senate, or the Senate, with res in exercising its trial power, will dismiss uh, the articles when they get there. We, we, we will exercise our trial power uh, by setting a deadline for transmission of those articles and a, and a penalty for not transmitting them uh, in a timely way. Correct. So let's start with the motion to dismiss. I don't think the motion to dismiss is currently in order under the existing impeachment rules. That's why it had to be added during the 1999 Clinton rules. If you, if the Senate wants to create a new rule that says we're going to tell the House as leverage to hurry, get them to hurry up, when your articles get here, any senator can move to dismiss these things, and it will be very easy for them to do so, once they're here, then yeah, that's fine. They can do it because that's there. It's within their four walls. What's the, what the Senate can't do is place requirements on the House. And then the other big question is, can the Senate dismiss something preemptively? But passing a rule to create or, or establish or authorize a motion to dismiss once the articles arrive is very different than moving to dismiss before the articles get there, in my mind. So do you think the the proposal by Senator Hawley uh, is is not consistent with the Constitution. I think Senator Hawley's proposal is is a very well thought out proposal. I'm not sure that I fully 
agree with every bit of it. But I will say, for instance, the provision that the House Journal, there's a provision in there that says, as a senator may move to dismiss these articles if it's been 25 calendar days or so as recorded in the House Journal. So that gets rid of some of these um, subjective problems that would creep in as to before these, you know, before members can make a preemptive motion to dismiss. So I think it's there. I think, I think Senator Hawley's resolution is a resolution that is designed to create leverage to change the conversation because I think he is concerned about the underlying constitutional implications of impeaching but not really impeach. We're not really serious about it. Um, it's not like we impeach but then we're going to work on it for a while and then send you the articles. I think he's concerned about that, and I think that's a good thing. Um, as to its constitutionality, I'm not sure that it's, it's I would say it's unconstitutional. I'm, it's just from a, my concerns are more practical, and, and, they, and they relate to how do you dismiss something that's not before you. And, and just as a practical matter, say the Senate does preemptively dismiss or preemptively holds a trial, as Senator Graham apparently, Lindsey Graham wants to do. Well, that's all well and good, and they, and, and senators point to the Constitution to justify and, and even say they're being compelled to do this. Well, what happens when Pelosi sends over the articles three weeks after that? Do they, do they ignore them? Because they've, you know, or do they say, we're going to go ahead and have another trial, at which point they're saying that their first proceedings were kind of irrelevant or illegitimate? And then lastly, how do you have an impeachment trial without the House making its case? Like, it just seems, I'm not sure that's possible. I mean, there's just lots of different difficult problems that don't make a lot of sense. Well, I think that's what Hawley's proposal tries to, tries to address. Correct. And with respect to Hawley's proposal, Senator Hawley's proposal, uh, how many votes as a practical matter would it take to pass that proposal? So, you know, we're getting into, you know, filibuster and cloture. How many votes? So it depends, as everything does in the Senate, right? It's simple majority. Everything in the Senate, other than treaties and impeachment, right, or veto override as well. So it only takes a simple majority. But the question is, can you filibuster it? And if you can filibuster it, it's a, it's a, mo it's a proposal to change the rules. So therefore, it takes two-thirds of senators uh, present and voting. So typically 67 if everyone's there. But that's also only if senators filibuster it. There's lots of different provisions in the rules that allow um, the Senate to, to clamp down on filibusters and make it really hard. Filibuster is not a veto. It may operate like one, but that's only because everybody lets it. It's not a veto. It's very hard to filibuster something and actually stop it. So it takes simple majority regardless. It could take 67 votes to end debate on the, his proposal before he can vote on a simple majority. Or it could take a simple majority if, if Republicans decide to use the nuclear option and get rid of that provision, which I don't suspect they will. Or they could do it just for this trial, the Trump impeachment trial, after the articles have arrived, which would kind of render it, because his is a preemptive motion to dismiss, but they could modify it somewhat and say, we're going to make it motion to dismiss once the articles are here, and then McConnell can put it in this package he has. And at that point, because there's no debate allowed in impeachment trials, it would be a simple majority. Got it. Okay. All right. So now let's say, let's assume uh, the speaker transmits the articles. Uh, the Senate gets them. There's been discussion, as we noted at the top, about uh, what the supplemental rules package will look like. And although... We haven't yet seen it at the time of this podcast. What we've heard from Senator McConnell is that he would be using or looking to the Clinton supplemental package for guidance uh, and, and as, a, as sort of a, a, a baseline, that approach. Those rules essentially provide for arguments by the lawyers— questions by the senators and then only once that's done will uh, the senate consider whether or not to call witnesses am i right about that that's correct let me take a step back so for your listeners as they're reading about this it's very confusing the way it's presented mcconnell finally has the votes to start trial well the trial is automatic 
as I said before, once the articles arrive, McConnell is irrelevant to whether or not the trial starts. The trial starts. The way that the impeachment rules, I'm trying to think about how to explain this, the way the impeachment rules go about structuring the trial is that they have lots of requirements, so or issuing a summons to the respondent, the person impeached. Well, if no one objects, that just happens. And these are the standing impeachment rules. These are the standing rules. impeachment rules. It just happens. Already in effect. And they modified, senators modified these provisions in 86 to make it even easier because the rules were meant to guarantee a fair but expeditious trial. It's not like they have all these options to obstruct. So if there's a requirement in the rule to issue, say, a summons, now the Senate will have to agree on a time, so that's a little different, but it, it just happens unless someone objects, at which point there's a vote. But it's an immediate vote and a simple majority. So even if there is a big fight over whether or not to summon the respondent, it's going to happen. So McConnell doesn't need to somehow find the votes to do that. What he's saying is I found the votes to, like you said, agree on or to adopt a supplementary package similar to what we assume Clinton governed in the Clinton trial, which issue, which directed the uh, summons to be issued as provided under the rules. It then set aside certain times. It named dates. It gave the House time to respond to the president after the president responded to being impeached. It then, it was very interesting, it set up, after they, after they presented their cases, their sides, it set up six, I believe, 16 hours of debate for the senators to talk about this, which you have to do because the Senate, they can't debate things unless you go into closed session. So they set up 16 hours of debate, in the end of which... And by debate, you're talking about the... The, the senators. The period by which the senators actually get to question the lawyers after the lawyers present their arguments? Correct. So senators could always issue uh, questions, motions, and through writing to the chief justice in this case. But yes, in the Clinton impeachment trial, they had this long period of time, this big chunk of time, at the end of which they also authorized a motion to dismiss. Uh, I believe uh, Robert Byrd from West Virginia offered the motion to dismiss, and it failed. It's very interesting where the Clinton impeachment trials rules came from, though, that, that package, which is separate from the witness issue, which I'll get to in a second. My understanding is that there was a bipartisan desire to avoid an impeachment trial or to have it over as quickly as possible in the Senate. And they couldn't quite get the agreement they wanted, so this is ultimately what they got. And they were hoping to get through this as quickly as possible. There wasn't a desire to, have, to air out all of Clinton's dirty laundry on the Senate floor. People didn't think that it was good. Maybe they didn't think it was good for moral reasons. Maybe they didn't think it was good for political reasons. Lots of different things, I, whatever. But there was a bipartisan desire, not everyone, but there was a large bipartisan desire to avoid this. So they went, so they have this package and they try to get through this trial. And then at the end of which they still aren't quite there. And so there's a, de a desire to call witnesses. And even before you, you get there though, I, I, it sounds like the point you're making is the Clinton supplemental rules that were adopted are the rules that a body adopts if they actually don't want to have something that looks like a normal trial with witnesses and contested issues and contested testimony and things like that. These are rules that you adopt when you want to get through the process as quickly as possible with as little of that as possible. Yeah. Correct. In the original motion to dismiss, my understanding is, wasn't a motion to dismiss. They were going to have a, a test vote on the verdict, a test vote. And if it failed to get 67, then they would just go on and they would leave the trial and they would go on about their business and, and they wouldn't be bothered with it anymore. They couldn't get agreement for that. So they had to go with the motion to dismiss. The problem with the motion to dismiss was when it failed, the articles are still pending, right? They're still there. They couldn't get unanimous consent to get rid of them. And so they had to figure out a way through it. And so you get through this process. There's a motion to dismiss. And so uh, your characterization is an interesting one. The Clinton impeachment, the first supplemental package of rules was designed to not have a trial. <laughs> it, was to get, it was like a bunch of people getting together saying, we don't want to have a trial. Let's do this. And then it didn't work. And so they were like, okay, well, now how do we get? And so then they turn to witnesses. Before you, we get to witnesses, just, I just want to paint the, make sure the picture is painted for, for the listeners. Uh, as you've pointed out, the trial happens regardless of whether there are going to be supplemental rules or not. Uh, the existing rules plus the standing Senate rules give the Senate 
plenty, plus the Constitution, give the Senate plenty. And its precedents, like all of the things that it's done in these past the trials. Once the articles are delivered and the uh, and the managers come over, there's going to be a trial. It even tells them where to stand on the floor. Yep. I mean, we're, this is very specific stuff. You're talking about the senators, where the senators stand? Where the where house they... managers, where they respond in, it, 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 it dictates the order in which they speak, where witnesses stand when they're questioned. I mean, this is very specific stuff. And we walk around this town like we don't have any rules and it's going to be the Wild West. And it's like, no, it's not. They're there. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so under the, the supplemental Clinton rules, if something that looks like that are, are adopted— uh, then there would be presentations by the lawyers by both sides, and then a chance for senators to question witnesses. And then again, if it, if it's the Clinton rules, then a possibility of witnesses following the conclusion of that process, right? But that the witnesses were the second resolution. So the first resolution of supplementary rules in the Clinton trial, which was adopted at the outset of the trial, only went through the motion to dismiss. But provided that there could be at the end of that process. Then the regular rules would kick in because there's no, the, the first resolution's not there anymore. And you have, I think it was SRS 30, where actually my understanding is, and what I'm told is that there was a great deal of agreement behind the scenes on SRS 30, it, it went through on, I believe it was SRS 30, it was a, on a partisan basis, I think it was like 54 Republicans voted against it, all Democrats against it, and it or and it specified witnesses to be deposed. Even before we get to that, those are the, the deposition rules, under the under the Clinton rules, which are SRS 16, uh, it, it provides, so the Senate will proceed to vote on a motion to dismiss, and if defeated, an immediate vote on a motion to subpoena witnesses and or present any evidence not in the record, all without intervening action, motion, amendment, or debate. And I would submit that that's what the, I would be very interested to see if McConnell's supplementary package includes that last bit, but that's what the rules provide. I mean, the rules provide, I mean, this stuff is already spelled out in the rules. They're just pointing that out. So after the motion to dismiss fails, if you don't have anything after that, then any senator can stand up and move to call a witness. They can do you can, any of the things that you would do in an impeachment trial can be done at that point under the Senate's rules. Let's talk about that. So a senator stands up, presumably a Democratic senator would stand up and move to subpoena, let's say, John Bolton as a witness. What happens next? Well, my guess is the Senate adjourns for the day. <laughs> Probably what happens when, whenever something that's uncontrolled like that happens, the leaders immediately try to figure out a way to put the Senate in a quorum call or to adjourn uh, so they can work it out behind the scenes. But, well, you know, he would either show up or not. Or let's put it this way. The presiding, the chief justice would first rule. And then this, my guess is he would not rule and he would submit it to the Senate. And the Senate would have to vote. And if it, it was approved whenever they came back from their adjournment, you know, it would then be up to the Bolton, whether or not he's going to show up, which is a whole different issue. I mean, th this has been and probably will be the nerdiest podcast that, <laughs> that we do. But to get even a little bit nerdier, so the, the there's a motion by a Democratic senator to call John, uh, to ca call John Bolton as a witness. Let's say the supplemental rules say, as the Clinton rules say, uh, that will be voted on without any intervening action, motion, amendment, or debate. Could there still be an effort, notwithstanding that, or would there be an effort to either amend the motion or amend the rules? In other words, is there anything the Republicans could do to either prevent a, an up or down, a down vote on that motion or to, to delay it? I'm wondering how outside the box to go here. So there's... There's nothing that can be done in the Senate to prevent determined senators from getting votes. But the Senate can always protect itself against that. So what's your, your point about the supplementary rules package and say it, it's adopted during the impeachment trial, which means without debate, which means at a simple majority threshold. And it says that these questions can't be amended. Well, and there's no intervening action. Well, say someone moves to call John Bolton. 
and someone makes a point of order and says that's because the Senate rules aren't self-enforcing. I mean, presumably the chair could theoretically say I, that's not in order, but probably wouldn't. So at that point, you know, someone make a point of order, the senator would, you know, object and say that's not, you know, I'm, it's not in the, it's not allowed under the rules. Chief Justice could rule or submit it to the Senate, or if he does rule, the Senate would then appeal the ruling of the chair, at which point it would be cast, I imagine, as like the nuclear option. You're breaking the rules. But it's very interesting because you adopted those rules at a simple majority threshold in the first place. And so if you have a 67, the, the nuclear option is such a problem because it, allow, it doesn't allow, it's constitutional, but it, it's when a simple majority of the Senate uses their constitutional power to get around a supermajority provision that they put in the rules. In an impeachment trial, there is no supermajority provision. So can you nuke the supplementary rules? I would argue you can nuke the impeachment rules, but can you nuke the supplementary rules? What, what, what do you think? I think you're just changing them because, you, I mean, that's a simple majority can change the rules whenever they want. And it's not like you adopted the supplementary rules under a supermajority regime. No, you did it under a simple majority regime. So what's the harm of having a vote on an appeal and whether or not you should change them because things have changed and you think you want to do something different. That's the very nature of precedence, by the way. Yeah. And, 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 and so where I was going ultimately with that is, is there a way, uh, given the current dynamics as a practical matter? Yes. And I jumped ahead of you. So when there's no way to prevent senators from forcing things, the way in which the leadership, other senators persuade you not to force things these days is to say, you can't do that because if you do, then the other side will get power and they'll use the nuclear option and then they'll, you know, get rid of everything that's good and holy. And so they first characterize what you're doing as the nuclear option. And then second, they say it'll threaten the legislative filibuster, neither of which I think pertain in this case. So I guess my point is no. At the end of the day, the only way to prevent a senator from doing something is to not recognize a senator. But you can't not recognize a senator because the chief justice sits in the chair and you don't control the chief justice. You can't force the chief justice or make it a condition upon sitting in that chair whether or not that chief justice will recognize that person or that person. So that's one thing that that it sounds like we're confident that a chief that the chief justice can do uh, is and 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 is decide whether to recognize a a senator. Yes. Yes. Now the Senate. I mean, I would argue that the presiding officer cannot not recognize senators. The question is, when do they recognize them? In what order? That sort of thing. Yeah, and you posed an, an interesting question on on Twitter, which was uh, about the order. And it, again, it, you know, this all sounds you know, very potentially nerdy, but it could have an impact uh, if a bunch of different senators want to be recognized at once. Uh, does the chief justice recognize the majority leader first? Does he recognize the minority leader second? Uh, how does the chief justice decide who to recognize? Well, the Senate rules, which apply to impeachment trials when the impeachment rules are silent, say, I think it's rule 19, that the senator that seeks recognition first gets recognized, period. That's it. And the question becomes, well, what happens if two senators seek recognition at the same time? And then we get into priority of recognition, which is the foundation of our kind of leadership power in the Senate today. It goes back to Cactus Jack Nance Garner, you know, John Nance Garner from the 1930s, vice president of Roosevelt. Cactus Jack is everybody's favorite presiding officer, right? Great name. And he just decided, though, one day, just took it upon himself to say, you know, I'm going to start recognizing the majority leader. I think it was Senator Robinson from Arkansas at this point first, and then the minority leader second, because it makes things easier. If two people seek recognition at the same time, and one of them is the majority leader, that person, the majority leader, is getting recognized first. It was a favor that the vice president was giving to the majority leader. It was, it was, he was like doing him a favor. The Senate can't force the chair to recognize the majority leader first. They can, after the majority leader's not been recognized first, the Senate can try to reverse the ruling. Ultimately, two practical questions. One is, is there a way for Senate Democrats to force the testimony of John Bolton? As a practical matter, is it, are they, can they engage in dilatory tactics, obstructive tactics, et cetera, to force the testimony of John Bolton or to provide them with enough leverage 
to force something there. And related to that, is there a way for Republicans to to shut that down through whatever tactic? So is a practical matter under the Senate's rules and I would argue the Constitution that, I mean, there's nothing that prohibits Democrats from calling, proposing to call a witness. They can't force a witness to come, but they can have a vote. They can say, we want to make a motion that John Bolton come and testify. And then their colleagues will have to vote on that. The rules not only don't prohibit it, they empower Democratic senators and any senator, doesn't matter who you are, to do that. And there's nothing that Republicans can do to stop that. So let's say it's a majority vote and the Republicans, let's assume, have 50 votes to to vote that down. Are there any leverage points that the Democrats have? Again, you know, dilatory tactics, obstructive tactics, whatever it might be, to provide leverage to have something happen with respect to that testimony, whether it's the testimony, deposition, written questions, some sort of deal to get Bolton's information. So there's no filibuster. So you can't do that. And without debate, I'm not sure it's dilatory per se, at least in the sense that we think of it today. They could offer endless motions. They could offer lots of different things. uh, But I think that would be a hard thing to get away with in an impeachment trial. I think the grand sweep of um, our impeachment history in this country is that these things are serious. They should be treated seriously. The person who's been impeached should be given a fair hearing, and it should be conducted expeditiously. The Senate's rules and precedents say this. And the idea that you would go back to a 19th century model of obstruction whereby you are obstructing via motion versus talking endlessly because you can't uh, is, I think, hard to really persuade your, both your colleagues and the American people of. Sometimes I, I, I do this on, on cable news, on CNN, where I get you know a few seconds, and my prediction was unless the Republicans in the Senate uh, countenance it, John Bolton is not testifying at this trial. Is that a fair shorthand for what we've just discussed? Yes. I mean, Democrats would need some Republicans to support them. And look, I think you're absolutely right as a practical matter, because once McConnell sees that Schumer has the votes to call over his objections, witnesses, he's going to cut a deal with Schumer. Yeah, but he'd need he'd need the votes, which means he'd need Republicans. Right. So Schumer needs Republicans to call a, to call a witness number 1 because he has to get the Senate to approve it and he doesn't have 51 senators. Number 2, the second I would even go one step further, the second that McConnell sees that that he has the votes if he does for whatever reason, then McConnell's going to cut a deal because the last thing McConnell wants is Schumer usurping his power it's like in the house of commons if you lose a vote the government a big important vote the government just dissolves because the last thing he wants is schumer now calling the shots in an impeachment trial because he can get 51 and mcconnell can't because the majority leader's power is only priority of recognition that's it yeah that's it and while it still matters in an impeachment trial it matters much less than it does during legislative business there's there's no debate you can't control the floor there's, you have no power. It's not a very powerful position. And so it, it depends on deference, and it depends on this aura of power. And that's why I think, yes, if there is an agreement to call witnesses, I think it'll be a bipartisan agreement that will be passed via a second supplementary rules package like McConnell has indicated. Not, not just that it will. It would have to be. But yes, any, any, it would have to be bipartisan, number one, regardless if it was done under the rules or if it was done in a supplementary package. It would definitely have to be bipartisan. My, my prediction would be that it would be very bipartisan. It would be a large majority of both parties um, who would support this resolution, and then it would go forward. So now let's talk about uh, the president. Uh, the president's going to be represented by counsel. Sounds like counsel uh, for the White House and also private counsel. Can the president himself, uh, can he decide to make a statement before the Senate without being subject to cross-examination? You know, an idea I had was if he wanted to do that, it would be quite the spectacle, which might be attractive to some presidents. It's been a very entertaining couple of years. Let's not stop. One idea I had was if he showed up as a witness, well, he'd be subject to cross-examination, presumably, but he could, uh, I would assume, deliver uh, part of the closing argument, for example, if if he wanted to. What do you think of that? So the impeachment rules say the respondent or counsel for the respondent. And after being summoned, 
the respondent replies or responds to the, the House's impeachment. So the president could presumably do that. He could respond to the articles of impeachment against him. Then it wouldn't be cross-examination, but then the House responds to the president, right, the replication. Or, as you said, he could give uh, closing arguments. There's no reason why he can't. He could defend himself, you know. So it would be it would be something. And if you treat an impeachment trial not as a legal proceeding, because it's not it isn't an Article Three trial, which I think is where some people actually get confused about it. We use the words of Article Three trial, but it's not. It's a political process, but that doesn't mean that it's the legal stuff doesn't matter. Of course, it matters, but you the way you win <laughs> is different, and if we think back to the Nixon impeachment, although I never impeached really, but if you think back to it, um, what was interesting is if you look at what Baker and Dole and other senators that we don't associate with kind of you know, bomb throwing or bombastic um, senators on the far right or left, they were saying things at the time that were very similar in terms of dismissing and saying it's illegitimate and all of this other stuff to what um, you see senators today on, say, the you know, very conservative senators saying about Nixon's impeachment in the House against him. But by the end of it, they were saying, well, much different things, right? And we remember them differently, and we remember that process, but we forget the beginning of the effort to impeach President Nixon. And what happened in between the beginning and the end when he was finally convinced to, to step down and to resign was politics. And you had more information come out, and you had people tuning in, and that changed their opinion. And as their constituents changed their opinion, maybe it, it made the members change their opinion. And maybe the members change their own opinions themselves. Somebody like a Goldwater, for instance, is like, you know, I've looked at this and now I really think I do think differently. But at the end of the day, we have to remember it's a political process. It's about persuasion. We're not, it's your persuasion and you're persuading the Senate whether or not the president should be convicted or acquitted. And there's different ways of doing that. And we know that one model of presidential power today is to go over the Senate's head to their constituents and get them to pick up the phones and call senators and tell them how you want them to vote. Well, that applies in an impeachment trial just as well as it does in any other context. And so this, it seems, would be the kind of spectacle, if you would, um, that would create enough attention. And I don't use that in a positive or negative sense. It's just something that's completely- It is. It's different. It's a spect the definition of a spectacle. Right. And it would create a lot of attention, which is the first thing you need. And then you get people to then tune in and then push your their senators to go one way or the other which is is something that i've been i suppose critical but it but I, i've at least noted about the house process which it seemed to be lacking from the house democrats effort an effort to sort of go over the heads of 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 people of, of the of the media go over the heads of the of the members and get to uh the average person and try to persuade the average person. Maybe they weren't persuadable, uh, but it seemed like there was an effort that was lacking there because at the end of the process, the public opinion about it was essentially where it started. But with respect to the to, to the rules, you know, we, we've gone for a while. I'm going to let you go. I appreciate how generous you've been with your time. Well, I could give you another six hours if we're talking about the Senate rules. All right, but w without another six hours, can I'm you not give sure me your listeners would enjoy that? Yeah, maybe. Um, are, are are there any other things? Just because I, you know, I, I've seen a lot of uh, just very bad takes uh, in the media, on Twitter, elsewhere. Are there any other things you think uh, our listeners should know, uh, should look for misconceptions, anything like that? The most important thing is for your listeners to understand is the Senate can change its rules whenever it wants. It doesn't need to be in an impeachment trial to change its rules. It can. And when it opts to change its rules, that then triggers, in this context, different requirements. So if you change them in outside of a trial versus inside of a trial, you have a higher threshold due to the filibuster than inside the trial. Uh, if you change them inside the trial, they're meant to be supplementary. So I think that's the first thing is to understand that the senators are very powerful that the majority leader does not have as much power as we think he does, that all senators are equal, that they all can make motions, that they can all force votes, that there's, that there's no debate, that these things happen immediately and are adjudicated immediately, and that the 
the way I look at it is the way I make sense of all of this that's happening is that efforts to negotiate deals and packages and everything else are meant to try to control that process. And I think it, and whether or not your listeners agree or disagree with the content of the packages, with the content of the articles of impeachment, I think it helps to understand by know what's happening and how it will unfold by knowing that there is a desire to kind of wrap things up on the front end, get an agreement, then we have some sort of process, and then in the Republicans' mind, preferably be done, in the Democrats' mind, maybe then we come back and have another bite. But then, but even then, there's going to be, it's not like you're going to then have a wild west of dueling witness motions. Um, my guess is there'll be a big kind of resolution, similar to the first one, like in the Clinton trial, and it will say the witnesses that they had negotiated on and agreed on. And then it wraps it all up in a bow, and then it gets rid of that chaos, and it makes it very controllable, and then they move on. And I think there's a bipartisan desire on both sides, both Schumer and McConnell, Democrats and Republicans, to, to go down that road. Because quite frankly, that's how the Senate operates today, not just in impeachment trials, but in all contexts. All right, James, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate all the time. Thanks for having me.